Independent Business Podcast is brought to you by HoneyBook, the all-in-one platform for anyone with clients. Book clients, manage projects, and get paid faster all with HoneyBook. You can use the code podcast to get 20% off your brand new account and let business flow your way. Did you know that 34% of entrepreneurs have zero retirement savings plan for themselves? That statistic is scary, but not entirely surprising. It can be easy when you run a business to put things like saving for retirement on the back burner because frankly, you're busy. You're trying to grow this business and you're working in it. But the idea of working on it and working on your personal finances can not only be daunting, but an easy thing to procrastinate for far too long. That is why in today's episode, we are sitting down to talk with the co-founders of Ocho. Ocho Wealth is a new startup that focuses on supporting entrepreneurs in helping to turn business income today into generational wealth tomorrow. Two of Ocho's co-founders, Ankur Nagpal and Jessica Tork, sit down with me today to talk more about why independents struggle with saving for retirement, how we can reframe our mindset around creating wealth, and give you some tactical tools that you can implement today, especially if you are somebody that is in that one-third of business owners who doesn't have a retirement savings plan. Hey, everyone. This is your host, Natalie Frank, and you're listening to the Independent Business Podcast. More people than ever are working for themselves and building profitable businesses in the process. So on this show, I sit down with some of the most influential authors, entrepreneurs, and creators to break down the science of self-made success so that you can achieve it too. Encore Jess, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to have this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to this. Yeah, super excited for this. It's going to be fun. Awesome. All right. It is going to be fun. I am jumping in with uh, not quite a softball. I don't know. Maybe it's a softball, but I need to know, does money buy happiness? And if not, what do you believe that it buys? So I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the first one. I think money can buy happiness like indirectly. And I'll give you an example. So I think a lot of people they make a bunch of money and then they're like, wow, I actually feel exactly the same. And, you know, they sort of get into this trap where they feel like money did not directly buy happiness. For me, money was able to buy happiness by buying freedom. Like I was able to like not do the things that were stressing me out and that in turn made me happy. So I'll give you an example, like towards the end of running Teachable the last couple of years, I was very burnt out. We had a, you know, I didn't feel like the work I was doing was making me happy and being able to step away from that because of having money made me happy or like spending money to have time to see my family. So there's all these roundabout ways. I think money can truly make you happy, but it's likely not by, you know, buying more shit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the money itself is what it sounds like. Yeah. Jess, do you agree with that? I, I agree. But I think it's also like people forget about lifestyle creep because I think that everyone has like a number where they're like, okay, you know, yeah, maybe money doesn't buy happiness, but it certainly will take the stress off if I have X amount. If I make this amount of money in my business or I earn this amount of money, um, and then you get there, but then there's more problems that come because now you're comfortable, but you uncover other things that, you know, are stressful. And so I think that it's also just important to recognize that like, there's always going to be something else. And then just getting to the core of like, you know, like to what you're saying, Ankur, like, you know, if you have money, you can travel to visit your family more, they can come to you, which I think at its root 
that causes happiness it's not necessarily the money uh, directly and all of this obviously is true if like you're past a certain point i mean what's the having having money isn't everything not having it is like right like so if you're at a point where like not having money is causing like stress in your life getting past that will absolutely make a big difference the reason i start with that question is because it is one of the most commonly asked questions in regards to money and as someone that's run an independent business multiple of them over the past decade and a half I have always been shocked that oftentimes it's questions like that that we talk about, and that's where it ends. That's where mm -hmm. the conversations around money end for a lot of us. Now, as you grow in business, you sit at different tables, and at different tables, we have different conversations, which is part of why I started this podcast, to bring those conversations a little more into the open. But one thing that I feel is starting to change, and I know that both of you and Ocho is contributing to this is a wider conversation around money, around wealth, around how to generate it. And so I want to kind of take us from the common ubiquitous question into the double clicking of why is that? Why don't we talk about money? Have you experienced that? Is that something you've come up against in working with, you know, independents, both at your time at Teachable, now at Ocho? Do you see this as something that's common? And if so, why do you think it is? Yeah, I think it's, it's such an interesting question. Um, I think that it goes to, I mean, if you think back to when you were a kid or when you're growing up, I think for most people, the things that we don't talk about are politics, money, religion, right? Like there's just right. certain things that just generally people are like, oof, like be careful talking about that. And I think the problem with that and not being able to see like the nuance within like talking about money is that then we get older and, you know, when we're in high school or college, we're not really talking about money. We're spending or racking up credit card debt. And we just assume that everyone else is either doing the same thing or we just assume that, you know, it'll work itself out. And then you get to entrepreneurship and everyone's focused on making money because I think that is, for whatever reason, the metric that we determine as success. How much revenue did you generate in your business? And then no one wants to talk about the like, oh, well, I don't actually really know how to allocate my money or I don't really know how to budget. I haven't really even thought about retirement. And then we kind of go back to that old phase where we're like, everyone else probably knows what they're doing. So I'm not going to be the one to say that I don't, um, at least from my perspective, I think is what I see. Yeah. I also think a lot of these beliefs, we just internalize what our family does without really thinking about it for a long time. Like my parents are Indian and like in Indian culture, it's pretty crude to talk about money. And for a long time, I did not because like, I was like, okay, you know, I'll just do what my family does. And then as I started to form my own opinions, I was like, actually, when you talk about it, it's empowering, right? The more you talk about it, the more people can even find out what's, what's happening and how they stack up and all of that. So, um, right now at this point, we have different beliefs. Like my parents would never talk like in their friend group, no one has ever talked about how much they make, how they invest any of it. It's just considered like a taboo topic. But, you know, I think for our generation and the people I know, things are, are changing, but by default, I think we just sort of do, we do what our family did without questioning it. Yeah, that was similar in my house as well. We didn't talk about money. I was raised by a single mom. And often if we did talk about it, it was from a standpoint of budgeting and how to get more of it. And not that it was ever rooted in a scarcity mindset, but I do think there was a lot of fear that I experienced kind of at different points in my, in my upbringing around money. And I know I'm not alone in that. A lot of business owners come from, from backgrounds like that where they enter the business world where, you know, even just operating uh, your own company requires a lot of financial knowledge that mm -hmm. isn't readily available for so many, or at least in the past, it hasn't been. And that's part of why when I hear statistics like the fact that 40% of independent business owners 
entrepreneurs, they're not confident that they're going to be able to retire by retirement age, 40%. And that, that stats from SCORE, you know, it's very scary, but it's not shocking. It's not surprising because I think, you know, there is such a knowledge gap and such uh, an opportunity, right? At least, especially I would hope in your eyes as you're creating mm -hmm. something so valuable for independents that are in that position to change the trajectory of their savings, of their life, of the retirement that awaits them. But I'd love to know, you know, with that stat in mind, what, what do you think, you know, is, is holding business owners back from saving for retirement, from creating that type of generational wealth that we all desire to see for those in our community? So I think that, I think we need to like break it up into a couple of buckets because like, I think the first hurdle of like why people don't feel like they're ready for retirement, they don't think they'll be ready for retirement. Um, I think on, on one hand, there's a lot of focus when you become an entrepreneur it's like, I'm doing this because I want to do what I love. And part of that, you know, subconsciously is they're like, okay, well, you know, when you're working a nine to five job that you do not like, you're like, I cannot wait to retire. The focus is on retirement. And then you start doing things that you love and you're like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm living in the moment. Even if you're stressed, it's still like you want to be doing this. So I think there's potentially that mindset element of like not like thinking more in the present of making money, generating revenue, doing what you love and not like, what will this look like if you do want to take a step back just to create that safety net? And then the other thing too is I think there's just also, you know, when we talk about having access to knowledge and information when it comes to finances, if you don't understand how things work, it can feel incredibly overwhelming. Um, and I think in the last 50 years, there's been like 150,000 words added to the tax code. So it's already just such a daunting task that I think it's so easy to procrastinate and feel like, I'm not not doing this. I'm just kind of pushing this off until I can learn everything rather than just taking one initial step, which is, well, how can I at least budget so I have some money to put wherever I decide to put that for retirement? Mm -hmm. I also think there's a bigger retirement problem in this country. Like, yes, we can talk about business owners, but I think in general, like retirement is it's pretty scary and it's totally broken in this country. Like, I think for a long time, like the government has sort of just passed the buck to the employer, um, bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And even now, every two or three years, they realize that like social security is in a really bad state. 401ks and stuff are not getting contributed enough to like as recently as, you know, December 30th, Biden sat, uh, signed the Secure Act too. And my guess is they'll keep having newer and newer legislation as they realize that like our generation specifically and onward, like is in a really broken position for retirement because of the onus that has been passed on to companies, right? Back in the day, you had pension plans. There was a much more robust infrastructure around it not anymore and obviously exacerbated if you don't have an employer or you become your own employer which is you know where we come in but i i mean this is kind of depressing but i think it's kind of, it's messed up for everyone and pretty systemically and not just business owners i agree a hundred a hundred percent absolutely agree a hundred percent and the lack of infrastructure is something that we talk about a lot or that dependence on the employer to kind of support the individual mm -hmm. and once you go independent you don't have right that that existing infrastructure whether it's good or not mm -hmm. uh, it, it it disappears now with that in mind you know where does someone begin so if you are an independent business owner let's say you are either in the 34 percent that you know doesn't have a retirement savings plan or maybe you do but you're in the 40 percent that isn't sure it will you know enable you to retire what are you supposed to do? Where do you begin? I think it depends on sort of where you are and what is sort of the 
best account for you based on what your income level is. So I think if you're if you're just starting out, if you don't have, you know, if you're not making, a, if, if you're in a lower tax bracket, it may be beneficial to think about a, an IRA where you don't have to get it. Like our, our core product is a solo 401k, so this is not even self-serving. Like I think if you're, you know, an IRA has a limit of $6,500, which if you're going to stay under that, it's the easiest type of account to set up. It's portable. You can take it anywhere you want. Um, if you're under $150,000 a year, you can also make it as a Roth contribution. And if you don't, if you're not served by any other retirement plan, you get a tax deduction for it if you set up a traditional IRA. So some a mistake I've actually seen people make is uh, setting up a solo 401k, which is what we offer, which is sort of the best retirement plan if you want to get go beyond that amount. But setting a solo 401k up can preclude you from getting a deduction on setting up an IRA. So it's something that I, you know we want to also highlight to people to be careful and know how much they want to contribute. Because if you want to contribute $6,500 a year or less, you're probably better off setting up an IRA. But once you want to go beyond that, a solo 401k is the best type of account for an independent business owner because you can get up to a $66,000 tax deduction this year. You can make Roth contributions. Unlike a traditional corporate 401k, you can invest it in you know any asset you want. And the best part is, of course, it keeps compounding tax-free. So it's really, there's not many things in the tax code that, in my opinion, are like a gift from the government and like built specifically you know, to benefit you. So we've been doing a lot of education around you know how people could be leaving money on the table by not pre-funding you know, their benefits. I think just to add on to that too, I know like people are like, okay, well then how like where do i find this money to contribute and obviously it depends on like what your your revenue is and how much you're making um but i cannot stress slash encourage people enough to actually take the time to do a financial forecast um i, I think when people hear i think we need to come up with a better name than a financial forecast because that just seems like just the most boring daunting thing um but really it's just mapping out what you're doing now and what you will probably be doing the next 12 months or you know however much you want to go in the future um, because I think people, and this isn't, you know, going back, this isn't just entrepreneurs, you know, people, W2 uh, employees also don't prioritize paying themselves first. And I think if you have bills within your business, you're paying them most likely or hopefully. Um, and so I think allocating a certain amount of money for your retirement and for your savings, whether that's in your salary or how you want to budget that, because if you don't map out what your business is going to look like over the next few months, um, we can fall into the trap of, you know, maybe it's like seasonality. There's certain seasons of the year, you know, especially if you're like a photographer, maybe you have certain products where you're like, wow, business is great. Okay, I can contribute or I can pay myself more this month. And then it goes down and then you're panicking and then you're just like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. Um, and so just really understanding what does your business look like month over month for an entire year on average will allow you to just be able to be more consistent and regular with allocating money for, for retirement. Oh, I love that. And the word forecast is a creative. It just gives me, it already makes me go, ooh, you know, but I completely agree. And we've seen similar things with just supporting business owners on, on mapping their client flow, for example, taking that moment to work on the business, not just in the business to really kind of put on the CEO hat or the COO or the CFO in this case hat and, you know, look, look into the future. It's so critical. It's so important. I'm curious though, how much is enough? You know, it, how much is enough to really support somebody into retirement? Is it a percentage of their income? Is it a certain benchmark by a certain age? How should we be thinking about it? I think like the, just like the best practice is because I think if we if we were to say like you should be saving 20% of your income, you know, every month putting that towards retirement, um, it's easy to hear that and be like, 
cool well that's not possible so i'm not going to do anything and i mean just like really thinking about the power of compound interest it's like consistency is going to be your friend over just doing bursts of like random large deposits when you can and so i think you know just like creating a habit what is like the least amount that you can allocate towards retirement and can you do that for the next six to 12 months and if you find that like month three it's actually quite easy okay i'll increase it a little bit but you never go beyond or below that amount that you set because otherwise people you just people just like wait or push it off until they can and then that's in the long term not helpful another realization we've had that's actually it's something we've or at least i've changed my mind on since starting this company is I thought not. I thought financial planners were something we could kind of replace, but I've come around to that thinking. I don't think we're going to replace financial planners because there's so much individual stuff to think about. Like for instance, as as you bring it up, like one of the big questions is like, what kind of lifestyle do people want to maintain in retirement? Is such a big variable, right? Like we can't prescribe the same one size fits all. So we're adapting our product and technology to also now be like, okay, we actually might have to do some personalization because mm -hmm. this one size fits all approach isn't for everyone. And which is why sometimes, you know, having a planner or someone to talk to can help because everyone's situation is, is unique and what they want from retirement is, is unique and accordingly like have very different philosophies. Like I'll give you, I was reading this book. I don't know if you've read it. It's called die with nothing and it's a more extreme perspective, but here the person argues you should actually front load your spending like too many people die with too much money because of this fear of running out and your utility from you know money goes lower and lower the older you get so the average person ends up you know saving too much for retirement and it comes from a, a place of fear i personally don't agree with that but you know like but that's it just shows a sort of spectrum of viewpoints when it comes to you know how much to save for retirement I love that last mm -hmm. tidbit right there. I also, as you were talking, kept thinking about my partner and I, my husband, you know, are even within, like we have had to have those conversations about retirement lifestyle. And it's funny, we have such different views. So working yeah. on the compromise where I'm like, yeah. I want to live in an RV down by the river, you know, like give me an Airstream and I will, you know, like, and, and whereas he's like, no, you know, it has a different, has a different uh, vision. So even just like, it's something, it's a good place to start for anyone mm -hmm. listening to this. Like, have you really thought about it? Have you mm -hmm. taken the time to think about the lifestyle that, that you want in mm -hmm. that season of your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Okay. One of the things I love uh, that both of you, I've seen both of you do on social and in your content is you talk a lot about sort of these underutilized, you know, financial tips, tricks, uh, tax savings opportunities, things that people just don't know that they, you know, like we talked about, it's not spoken about or, you know, there's just not a lot of awareness around. And so I'm curious if you're willing to share any of those with us, you know, what are some of those underutilized aspects of generating wealth, creating wealth, saving on your taxes that you wish more people knew? Oh, I mean, do you got two hours? We can, <laughs> we can talk <laughs> about go this. go throw a webinar right uh, now. Seven simple <laughs> steps. <laughs> but it's, I, I, this is such a great question um, and topic. I just, I, I love it. I, it's so interesting because I think most people assume that like these huge strategies and tricks and everything that, you know, maybe we'll share now or that you'll uncover, it's like, okay, well, they're usually tax loopholes. Like, you know, all these tricks, like they're just like, there's shady things or it's only for the rich and the elites to do. And um, the sad thing, you know, with basically, you know, what we'll, we'll be sharing now is like, this is pretty standard. It's not hidden. Mm -hmm. It's just that if you don't have access to this information, it's not even on your radar, which 
I think is one, understandable, but two, also empowering to know that there's so much that you can utilize and you can leverage. Um, you just need to, to, to hear about it. I would say like just starting like, like foundationally, the first thing is just really looking at your expenses as a business owner. Um, a lot of people, most people will, you know, they'll claim expenses on their, their taxes. That's, I think for the most part, people understand that. But we often forget that, especially if you work from home, there's so much that you would be paying for out of pocket anyways that you can leverage. Um, you know, if you think of, if you're, let's say, living in like a two-bedroom apartment, if you have one, like this room right here, this is a second bedroom, we use it as an office. That, for the proportional square footage, of course, you can't claim all of your rent, um, but that can come off your taxes. So let's say if you're, you know, spending, let's say $5,000 a month on rent, if you live in New York, that's also very uh, believable. And you've got one bedroom, 20% of the entire space. You know, that's about like $12,000 a year that you can take off your taxes, your internet, your utilities, your rent, like all those things. Um, highly recommend people looking at what they're currently paying for out of pocket and seeing like what is in fact a business expense. Um, and then, yeah, there's there's more like even like leveraging credit card points, which we can talk about in a, in a sec. But yeah, and even switching to an S Corp if you want to talk about that too, Ankur. Very quickly, the quick checklist to tell everyone to like think through is incorporation. Are you incorporated in the most intelligent way, which for like, let's say you're a startup founder, you want to be set up as a C Corp because you pay no taxes if you sell your business after five years. But if you're a service provider that makes over $100,000, you probably want to file for an S Corp election. So incorporation is the first place, place we look. Two expenses, which Jess already spoke about. The third big category is you can fund the benefits you want. So solo 401k, retirement account, health insurance, you can literally pick the best benefits for you, your family, your partners, because you know it's your business and you get to control that. If you want to start getting fancy and like this is the point at which it gets like advanced, but like people really want to like do dramatically different things to pay less in taxes, I think, you know, the world of real estate opens up a ton of different opportunities, but that's more of an advanced tactic if like, and I also think it's very important to, you know, figure out what is the return on return on hassle or return on return on how painful some of these things are because you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and dig yourself, you know, save marginally and marginally more amounts. but. Again, a lot of this also comes to like, what are you optimizing for? How important is like how painful your life becomes versus like marginal tax savings? But that that's the quick checklist. Mm, I love it. To also clarify for incorporation structure, um, and this is, you know, most people, if you're just kind of, you know, starting out or maybe you haven't like looked over the past few years of kind of how you're running your business, what your income looks like, um, just the standard incorporation structure, people will be either a sole prop or an LLC. And, you know, that's great. However, if you are listening to this and you're making about, uh, let's say like between $80,000 to $100,000 a year or more, uh, a lot of the times, most of the times, it actually is more advantageous to switch and be taxed as an S-corp. You save on self-employment taxes. Uh, so it's not applicable to everyone, but also just a really helpful tip to remember that if you are an LLC or you are a sole prop and your business is doing well, once you get into that threshold, you know that's where one, you can save I mean, if you're making $100,000, depending on what you pay yourself as a salary, um, I mean, you can save, you know, thousands of dollars with that tip alone. And then, yeah, the, the credit card points thing, I think, is like kind of getting into the weeds. But uh, it's something that I've recently like fully leveraged after talking to experts. And you like really can, if you have expenses that you're paying for anyways with a credit card, you know, especially for your business, you can start to leverage and maximize how many points you're earning which in itself can then 
turn into like free flights, upgrading flights, which is just a huge, huge saving. But um, yeah, that could be a whole other <laughs> conversation. I love the credit card points conversation, though. That's something that, you know, I, speaking of like mindset shifts and transforming the way that we think about money, my husband has always been the points guy in our house, and I've always run the other way from credit cards in general. They've scared me until recently, until I started to realize, oh, with the proper amount of, you know, financial education and consistent diligence in ensuring that we're really taking advantage of the cards that we have, uh, we, I mean, we've started flying business mm-hmm. class on points, not paying out of pocket, but on points. And so I do think that's a really interesting avenue that for a lot of business owners, again, it's, if it wasn't something that was discussed growing up, if credit cards were something that, you know, were shied away from or demonized in some way, it might feel like very unfamiliar territory for them. So I do love having that conversation. Mm -hmm. I love getting a little bit into the weeds on it. I think it's something that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to explore and something that really can have a lot of benefits. So if you have anything specific that you've learned that surprised you on that front, like I'm even curious, you know, with a business credit card, can you use those points personally? Like how does that even work? Yep. Oh, oh, Natalie, there's <laughs> so much Tell we can talk everything. about. It is basically, because it's in this weird tax gray area, it's sort of an untaxed benefit to you. So you're, you can spend money on your business credit card, earn points, use that personally. And because it's, again, the IRS has said they'll look into it, right? It's not that this will be like totally fine forever, but for now it's fit into this like nice little gray area where you absolutely can. And we know of business owners, especially people in like running a construction business, buying millions of dollars of materials, putting that all through their credit card. Or let's say you have an online course business, but you're spending huge amounts on Facebook ads, same thing, put it all in the credit cards, you know, have the points and use it for personal expenses, which is what I was doing. Now that we're a startup, it's a little bit different because we have investors and stuff. So in those cases, we're just opting for cash back. But if you are, if it's your own business where there's no other stakeholders, big fan of, you know, using the credit card points for personal use. And then uh, just to kind of break it down. So, you know, when it comes to credit card points, the first thing is I think people think that you need to obsess over loopholes. Like I know people that like love reading the fine print to find. I know someone who actually had their credit card. Uh, they were banned from this credit card company because they found a loophole that basically just. About. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like there's extremes. But what I would say is so the first thing to maximize how many points you can get. And again, the cannot stress this enough. You need to like one, ensure that you do have, you know, like a good, a relatively good credit score. Um, you need to trust that you will be able to pay off the debt. Do not pay the minimums, mm-hmm. pay it off every month because the benefits that you're going to be getting, like with interest and compound interest, it like, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, but the first thing is the way to get the most amount of points in a short amount of time is one, looking at sign up bonuses. So, so many credit cards will have like, you know, 100,000, 60,000 signup bonus points, but also looking at analyzing your spending. So if you're looking for a business credit card and you're spending a ton of money on ads, there are specific business credit cards that give you like multiple points for ad spend. Um, Don't just go for the Amex Platinum because everyone you know has it. Actually look at what is my spending what are like some of the biggest categories and which credit cards are actually going to give me more for that. But with the sign up bonuses too, uh, there's a thing called pathing. So to get a sign up bonus with credit cards, most of the time there's a certain amount of money you have to spend within a certain amount of time. 
So don't sign up for five credit cards and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to make 500K in points if you have to spend more than you actually financially can in like three months. So the strategy is called pathing where you start with one credit card, you leverage those, you know, the sign up bonuses, and then you can go on to another one. Usually you start with a Chase card and then Amex at the end, but that's like a really great place to, to start. And then, yeah, transferring your points out to partner programs. Oh, I love that. I love all of that. I like getting into the weeds. We're not cutting it in half. We're going <laughs> to have everyone re-listen to it twice and execute on it immediately. I want to double click into the solo 401k. I had never heard of this until y'all launched. Mm-hmm. And I've been running businesses for a very long time, uh, well over a decade. And I'm not embarrassed to say that because I'm learning more every single day. But I guarantee there are a lot of folks out there that don't even know this exists. So for a second, can we just talk about like, what is this? What mm-hmm. What is it? Has it always been around? Is it something new? Any information you can share on how we should be thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. I had the exact same journey when for the first time I had an LLC a couple of years ago. So I was looking at retirement accounts and I Googled it and I stumbled upon the solo 401k. And solo 401k, it works like a corporate 401k, but the big difference is you are both the employer and the employee. So you can custom build your own 401k plan to do exactly what you wanted to do. When I started reading about the plan, my first reaction was, this sounds too good to be true. Like it's got sort of the best parts of all the plans. Like, like why, like what's going on here? Why isn't everyone talking about this? And then I went down a journey of actually setting one up. And then I started to realize why no one was talking about it. It's because all the providers were sort of terrible, even though you are allowed to do all these things, like for instance, invest in you know any asset class, whether it's stocks, real estate, funds, no matter what, and have full discretion over that, most providers actually weren't allowing you to do that. So if you go to Charles Schwab, you could set up a solo 401k. It would take a lot of time, but you'd be limited to what Charles Schwab allows you to do. And they wouldn't let you have the benefits like having a Roth account under your solo 401k. So none of the providers honestly focused on it too much. And I, my hypothesis is because they thought it's a very niche product. They thought how many people are out there. And for a long time, there really weren't that many independent business owners to make it make sense. But as that changed, we realized it was a really interesting wedge for us to enter the market and initially built a product literally because I could find one for myself last year. I tried and, you know, six months and I'm like, oh, damn it, guess we got to start a company now. And <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's where we're now, where I think it's the best retirement account for someone self-employed because it gives you the highest contribution limits. Your money compounds tax-free. You invest in anything. You can make Roth contributions. And it's even got good, like, downside protections. Like, for instance let's say you end up needing your retirement money for other reasons, you can borrow up to $50,000 from your own solo 401k at no interest, no penalty, nothing, and pay it back later. So it's a very, very flexible account. I love that. Jess, anything to add there? Yeah, the the one thing too, just the the caveat is, um, you know, we've had people like, okay, great, I'm going to set up a solo 401k. You know, I've got all of my like five full-time employees. Um, A solo 401k is if you are, like you don't have employees uh, full-time employees under you. I think the, the difference, it doesn't count if it's your, your spouse or your, your partner, um, but having, if you have full-time employees, then it's not the right fit. But yeah, no, I think it's um either way, it's just definitely worth looking into. Or if you know someone that is self-employed uh, and doesn't have any employees, like send them this or just send them all the resources because it is such a game changer. I love it. I, again, I wish I knew about it. I mm-hmm. wish I, I wish y'all had existed when I was the solo with no full-time employees under me because, you know, back then I was so young and had no idea what to do. All right. And, and 
the world is changing for the better. And with all that you're building at Ocho, you're making it easier for business owners to create that generational wealth. As we wrap up this episode, I love to end with a final question. And I would love to get an answer from both of you. This is a podcast all about the science of self-made success. And so I'm very curious what you believe differentiates the businesses that succeed from the ones that fail. Avoiding the like mindset, because I do think there's a huge aspect that is mindset of like obviously believing in yourself and, you know, like actually, you know, putting yourself out there. Um, Because I think that that's probably a common thing that people will think or maybe assume. I do think though, one of the most important things that I have seen both from creators and startups is one, being able to listen and pivot. Um, Because you can have the best idea, but if even if the demand was there, but it's shifted, or if there's like a more nuanced approach that you could take for a problem or a pain point that people have. I mean, even if you just look at, like, we could talk about personal finance or is it personal finance for business owners? Like there's so many things that you can do, but I think that you just have to humble yourself and listen to your customers or the audience and be able to read like, okay, what are the opportunities there? And being able to, to pivot, I think has been a trend that I've seen for successful people. Yeah, I, I, my answer is gonna be very similar. Like once you get past the, like actually doing it, like the most cliche is like just like, you know, just do it. The biggest thing that holds people back is never doing it and talking about it. But once they actually get to the point of doing it, it's it's rate of iteration. Like even as as a startup or anything, our chances of finding success are like, how fast can we iterate on what we're doing until something clicks? And it's the same thing when you're trying to start up a business or anything is like, if you try things at a fast enough rate, it is inevitable you will find something. Ironically enough, I find sometimes this like hustle porn culture of like, you know, working on your idea for like 16 years and never seeing any traction is actually damaging. You should be absolutely willing to be like, wow, no one likes this. I'm going to try something else. And like just doing that rapidly, I think increases the odds of finding success. Whew. What a way to close us out. Both of those answers were so incredible. Encore Jess, thank you both so much for joining me today. I am going to have to re-listen to this one myself. This was so good. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. It was fun. That ends our episode of the Independent Business Podcast. Everything that we've discussed today can be found at podcast.honeybook.com. Head to our website for access to show notes, relevant links, and all of the resources that you need to level up. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss our future content. Drop us a review and leave our guests some love on social. Thanks again for listening.